hello and uh welcome to uh football unfocused uh the podcast in which myself and my good friend matthew discuss football in a way that is as the name suggests unfocused unstructured and exceptionally ill-informed uh, particularly for matt isn't that right matt yeah no, that's right that's right i was thinking we you know, to to ensure that there's sufficient energy in the podcast, um, we probably shouldn't talk for an hour and a half beforehand. Yeah, and begin <laughs> beginning each and beginning an episode with like a big sigh, <laughs> like oh, yeah, because this this should be like the the peak energy. Like you know, our our millions of listeners are going to want to hear like you know, sort of the start like a Radio One DJ start. Hey, upbeat like the breakfast show, not like two fucking wearisome losers just going oh <laughs> yeah so the end of our previous conversation was uh oh shall we, shall we do this podcast then <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. After an hour yeah. so anyone who hasn't heard this before which will probably be all of you and if anyone is listening it will probably be one of you um but <laughs> what we do is we we've sort of got in the habit over the last few weeks of just taking a subject and bashing it about a little bit um we're not professing to be experts football experts in any way so today we're talking about um whether there will ever be another team that could do a, a leicester city are we i uh, thought we were talking about whether there was uh still space for 92 uh football clubs but uh i'm happy to do leicester city because i think actually that there is there is there is actually uh quite a lot of um shared common ground between those two subjects so we can do leicester today and the 92 clubs uh next week yeah okay yeah yeah i you'll have, i'll have to work out what exactly you're referring to but yeah, yeah. we'll do less today because that's what i've researched so yeah oh, okay yeah yeah again for anyone who's listening for the first time which will be all one of you um matt i'll put it politely isn't necessarily the, the most natural co-host of a football podcast in the uh you know and not just about his sort of you know personality issues uh is more to do with his his actual general lack of interest in football i mean you're not you know i mean do you even like football matt (laughs) well you know i like chatting to you and i know you like it (laughs) (laughs) so there's any anything to facilitate conversation between us you just you're that desperate for just to talk that you think oh let's create a a podcast about football just like, you know, yeah, he'll, 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 he'll engage with that for half an hour a week. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know whether to be flattered or terrified. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so basically I found, obviously, Leicester City's odds when they first went into the 2015 <laughs> Premier League uh, were, were pretty high. And apparently... Um, 5,000 to 1, weren't they? Yeah, and Kim Kardashian was apparently had better odds of becoming US president than Leicester City were of winning. I the, thought uh, I didn't know when you began that sentence with Kim Kardashian. I thought you were going to say that she'd had a fiver on it. <laughs> that would have, that would have been. A, that, and I'd have been so delighted for her because she could definitely do with the cash, couldn't she? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is that is true. I mean, I'd imagine you could pick all sorts of uh, random non-Kardashian related. Uh, uh, facts that were uh, well, not facts, but uh, you know, scenarios that would have been equally uh, uh, inconceivable at the time. I mean, what has to be what has to be taken into account about that season is that that was just on the back of 
at the probably the most certainly of modern times the most miraculous escape from relegation um it, it was incredible the cliche that the team whose bottom at christmas always goes down that was sort of smashed by leicester and they won um something ludicrous matt i don't know whether in your research that you you actually uh um know this but it's something mad like eight out of their last 10 games they've gone from barely winning a thing in the first half of the season to sort of title winning form to stay up and then controversially parted company with their manager who had taken them because bear in mind again only about two or three years before that they weren't just in the championship they're in league one and they got out of that they got into the championship they got out of that won that division by quite a lot and then we're getting tanked on in the premier league recovered stayed up and then sat their manager and brought in claudio ranieri a man who hadn't managed in england since uh 2004 i think when chelsea got rid of him he was given one year of abramovich money had a pretty decently successful season uh, i think they got to the champions league semi-final and bottled it against uh monaco and uh, came, I think, maybe third in the league. That was in Arsenal's unbeaten, invincible season. And um, and hadn't been seen in English football since. And in that time, he'd, he'd gone and managed back in um, Italy and in Spain and, and done OK. But it was it was a bit of a left-field appointment when Leicester appointed him in the summer of 2015. Felt like it came out of nowhere. And there were people, even sort of, you know, prominent Leicester City fans like Gary Lineker, I remember him sort of tweeting saying, ah, oh, you know, getting rid of a tried and trusted Nigel Pearson for this like random appointment and, you know, doesn't hold out much hope for the, the coming season. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it is remarkable. Absolutely yeah. remarkable. And, and obviously that people were drawing comparisons even before the end of the season between, you know, sort of Nigel Clough, Norton and Forrest and. Wow. Uh, just, just say that again. I mean, that's incredible. Oh shit! Sorry, Nigel. <laughs> do you mean Brian? Brian Clough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, he's he's, he's long lost love child of a brother. I think it was. But but you yeah, do, we'll, you do we'll... actually know that he has a son called Nigel, who is a former player. Oh yes, that's yeah. right. so so the, the, what you've done there is twofold. You made you made the initial error, which is actually forgivable, considering that his 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 son was a you know a, a good player and he's has had a successful managerial career, but then. When that error was pointed out to you, you've not then recognised that Nigel is a real person. <laughs> I've doubled down on my. <laughs> yeah, you've had you've had such little faith in the 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 Nigel, you know, the the concept of <laughs> Nigel that you've put that, that that Nigel has has ceased to be an entity in your in your world. <laughs> um, but yeah. Brian Clough, yeah, go on. Brian Cup, but but they obviously there was not you know as I said before this season was even over they were they were making comparisons between the two, um, but what was what what was quite interesting is that when Brian Clough won in seventy seven he went from promotion to then winning the first division yeah seventy eight so, wasn't it uh, yeah okay yeah it might be and Pretty sure Liverpool um, won the league in seventy seven yeah. But well, you know, so it was Liverpool that not Nottingham Forest beat to, yeah. to win that, yeah. And um, you know, it was it was interesting that they focused one one. Of, so this article I was reading it was focusing on some of the big players, some of the really shrewd buys mm-hmm. that Brian Clough made during that season. Whereas 
Leicester City, it, from my understanding, they didn't really make those sort of. They they obviously had some great buys. You know, they you know people who were bought for less than a million, but that that wasn't within the season. But they did have some really good facilities. So so it wasn't totally you know. So while they didn't necessarily make the the you know the big buys, but they 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 had finance sufficient finance to be able to support a league winning run. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that because I, the, the thing is, yeah, that well, firstly, I actually I also don't agree with the analysis about the, the shrewd signings because I think that uh, they the, possibly when people look back on that season, they they focus mostly on three key performers that season uh, Jamie Vardy, Riyad Mahrez, who went on to be PFA and Football Writers Player of the Year that year. And N'Golo Kante. N'Golo Kante uh, is an inspired signing. He was playing, I think, French second, was it second division football? Uh, and the Leicester scouting team had watched him a few times. And I think that the, um, I think his name is Steve Walsh, who was like the, the first team coach, uh, well-respected first team coach at Leicester, was kind of quite obsessed with signing him and kept like dropping in when he get Kante, get Kante, get Kante. And uh, they got him for an absolute steal. They got Riyad Mahrez from Le Havre, which are a French second division team as well. I think it cost something like a like hundred grand. I've, I've got a feeling, um, in fact, I know that Mahrez was playing for them the, the season before, so he wasn't signed in the title season, but Kante was. And Mahrez showed enough, particularly in the second half of that, that's that, Great escape from relegation. That he was a you know very good player. Vardy is a like a throwback of a story. You know you just don't get these anymore. This is the type of thing that we're probably covering when we're talking about whether ninety-two clubs can still be sustained. But that that pathway from playing non-league and lower league professional football and then working your way up to the very top and being a success, you hear about that so seldom um, these these days. And and yet. Jamie Vardy is the, the the sort you know an absolute one-off playing for Fleetwood a couple of years before being the the top scorer in the Premier League and making it at that level quite late. You know, I mean, he's thirty, I think he's thirty-four now, so that would have made him twenty-nine, thirty when they won the title, and that was his that was the first big thing to happen in his career, and uh, you know, not since the days of sort of Les Ferdinand and Ian Wright turning a professional in their sort of, you know, at the age of like 22, 23, have we heard about similar stories? And that was sort of 20, 25 years earlier. So uh, there were so many things that sort of fell into place, like the perfect storm. They also had, which was very um, similar, a, a good comparison with Brian, Brian Clough, in that they had players who had not quite been the sort of, you know, the key man or the focal point or the missing piece in the jigsaw at other clubs and had not had left other, you know, big clubs and had been sort of surplus to requirements. Robert Hoof at centre-back had had a career um, initially playing for Chelsea, coming over from Germany, playing for Chelsea, and then a lot of years at Stoke, associated with the sort of Tony Pulis, long ball, Stoke physical stuff, and then surplus to requirements there and ends up at Leicester and you kind of think, oh, he's just going to see out his career and try and get the odd game for Leicester. And he ends up being the fundamental part of a central defensive partnership with Wes Morgan. Another one, 
entire career played outside the Premier League, always been a you know physically imposing and athletic central defender, a good leader, natural captain, that doubts as to whether he was good enough to play at the very top level. To then go up, progress with the club and to be the captain of a league winning team. Mark Albrighton playing on the wing, not wanted by his boyhood club and club that he'd come through the youth team and made it into the first team and played over a number of years at Aston Villa. Allowed to leave. And again, looking like, oh, he's, he's gone to Leicester. Is it, you know, is that just his career sort of fizzling out now? And he's still in the side now. You know, I was watching their Europa League game last night. And he's, you know, he's still highly regarded. So you've got these lovely little stories. Even Danny Simpson at right back, I think he started out at, um, playing uh, for that lot at Old Trafford and um, um, and was sort of let go and, and ends up at Leicester. Uh, Christian Fuchs at left back. There's, a, I think, there's some interesting stories about how they ended up um, signing him. So you've got this kind of this random mix of footballers that have ended up in that place at that time, and it's just clicked for them. It's including the manager. Everyone had something to prove. Everyone had been had experienced uh, rejection and disappointment in their career. Had faced adversity. Had played at lower levels, and they, it just it just clicked. I will say as well, they, the, the perfect storm. You have to look at external factors as well. A lot of the sort of opposition that would typically be sort of you know formidable to over overcome if you're going to go for a title as such outsiders um, were not in a position to uh, deal with the strength of Leicester that season. Manchester City. Um, that was their first season of Pep Guardiola, and he, I think he took a little bit longer than expected. Actually, no, remain there. It was the last season of Pellegrini, so it was one season before Guardiola um, came. And so they'd, they'd come off the back of a. Um, they won the title in 2014. They did okay in 2015, and then and then 15, 16 was um, you know just a bit of a transitional uh, season for them. Uh, Chelsea, who had just won the league, completely imploded. That classic Mourinho third season thing where they started the season really badly. Mourinho had a row with the doctor um, and, you know, classic controversy there and made her sort of, you know, humiliated her sort of publicly and got involved in a row, lost, very obviously lost the dressing room and then ironically got fired as a result of a defeat away to Leicester, uh, I think just before the Christmas of that season. Uh, Van Gaal was in charge uh, at Old Trafford and was not really living up to the expectations. They were still in that real lull of the the, the, the immediate uh, aftermath of Ferguson leaving and they just weren't able to sort of replicate it. A lot of players had moved on. They were left with a squad that was probably not great. And then they were just squandering so much money on players who on paper looked like amazing signings and uh, just never worked. Uh, I think that was the season they had uh, Di Maria, who, you know, came from Real Madrid, gone on to play for PSG, but inexplicable reasons was just awful at Old Trafford. Same with people like Bastian Schweinsteiger and Falcao. And it's, it's mad. I mean, if I if I cared, I would um, be, you know, speculate what greatly about as to why so many, since Ferguson's left, why so many sort of world superstar signings haven't worked out. So you got all of this, all at once, Liverpool, weren't in a position, you know, that was Klopp's uh, first season. He didn't arrive until the October. Uh, Liverpool had come within a 
poor Steven Gerrard slip of winning the title in 2014, then lost Luis Suarez, had a mediocre 2014-15 season, and then went into 15-16 with a lot of pressure under Brendan, Brendan Rodgers, who couldn't really get them going again. He got fired in the October. Jurgen Klopp comes along, doesn't have a squad that can really challenge for the title at that stage, not even getting the top four. Although they did that season get to the Europa League final uh, and the League Cup final. So you've got all of this going on at all the other clubs at the same time as Leicester have just hit this momentum. And But it's still remarkable. It is still remarkable. And you're right. What you say about the facilities, you know, they, they, they're not they're not paupers. They're not, you know, it's not like a club who are training on the local wreck of all of a sudden, you know, um, mixing it with the big boys who are playing at their, you know, multi-million pound state-of-the-art training complexes. But they still wouldn't have had the facilities and the resources and the transfer budget available to them that even sort of, you know, mid-table Premier League clubs would have had. Mm. Um, so it, it is incredible. And it is, I think, people will always throw that in there. When you hear debates about football and people saying, uh, you know, uh, it's impossible really to live the dream anymore. And, you you know, you can't only, there's this this sort of closed club of elite, um, of elite um, uh, football clubs that are going to be fighting it out for the honours for, for the foreseeable and someone will always say, but, but then what had explained Leicester and it's true. And I guess while there is still the possibility of a story like that happening at your club, it's what keeps the dream alive and keeps that, that overused term romance in football, um, you know, to keep that fire burning. But I mean, I guess if, if it's ever going to happen anywhere, it probably will happen maybe in the Premier League, you know, it's the richest league football league in the world. And is possibly arguably the most equitable. And so you you might have some, you know, mid-table teams who can yeah. purchase some decent players from um from Europe or or wherever and and you know you know as you say just make it work click together and Yeah it could it could but it's quite interesting though that if you look at the reaction to Leicester winning the league so the last four or five years has seen a raising of the the, the extent to which the, the the better resource clubs have raised their game, it's quite frightening actually, because for this season, in a lot of ways, you've got to forget it. It's looking very much like Manchester City are going to win the league. They're 10 points clear now. They're hitting an un- unbelievable spell of form. But what is re- absolutely remarkable about it, when you put it in the context of the, the, the last three seasons, is that even if they win every game for the rest of the season, they're going to end up with a points total that is lower than what they got in um, 2017, 18 and 18, 19, where they got 100 points and 98 points. Now, they are points totals that are higher than any, any season in English football history, not just Premier League, you know, football started in 1992 history. English football history. No, uh, no team at any stage has got that, that amount of points in the season. To the extent that Liverpool came second in 2019 with 97 points, lost the title by one point in that entire season. They lost one game, got 97 points, so they won the vast majority of, of, of points available and still didn't win the title. They've won the title at that time. I mean, they obviously won it last year. They've won 19 titles now, but they've won 18 league titles before and never 
in winning all of those titles had they got as high as 97 points. And yet they achieved that and didn't win the league. It's, it's, it is incredible. It, you know, the most, the, the, that lot of Old Trafford who have won their 20 league titles, most of which have been in the last 30 years. And uh, they at no stage got anywhere close to 97 points. You know, most of their titles, especially the 90s under Ferguson, they didn't even have to get above 80 or 90 points. I think they got 78 points when they won the, the treble. They won the league with 78 points when they won the treble in uh, 1999. So I guess what I'm trying to demonstrate is that the, the, the margin for error and the standard at that very elite is prohibited. So I think it's prohibitive to a similar challenge coming along. Nothing lasts forever, though. That is the beautiful thing about football is that, you know, you look at these situations, no, no one club dominates forever. Um, in fact, no two clubs dominate forever, certainly not, not in English football, because like you say, it is a bit more equitable and competitive than a lot of other domestic leagues. So, you know, as long as there are six or seven, you know, strong, financially well-resourced um, clubs that are pushing and pushing and pushing to try and, you know, get one up over their their, their opponents, then you're always going to get a, a healthy mix of different clubs within the league. And I, but I guess what becomes increasingly unlikely is whether somebody like, like Leicester could do it again. So you take West Ham this season. So West Ham at the moment, as things stand, are I think fourth in the Premier League with um, 60-odd percent of the season gone. Now, they're not going to win the league, but them getting in the top four would be an, a not dissimilar achievement to Leicester winning the title because, you know, they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're their, own, their own fans despise the owners for not spending enough money. The supposed broken, broken promises that were made to them about taking the club to the next level once they, um, you know, move out of their traditional home in Upton Park and move to the Olympic Stadium, that will open all these doors that wouldn't be open before the extra revenue from all the additional people to make them more commercially attractive across the world and build the fan base, et cetera, et cetera. And the fans have been fuming over the last couple of years that that hasn't borne out, that they've still continued to sell players, that they're not spending enough on transfers, that they're settling for mediocrity. Uh, this season, that without even spending a particular amount, bargains, you know, a couple of players from the Czech Republic, really shrewd buys with David Moyes, their kind of unfashionable manager who's had a really difficult last few years. They've hit upon something and are having an exceptional season. And they won again the other night. They've already, I think two weeks ago, they, they matched their points total of the of the whole of last season. And they're in a position where if they can, they've got a really difficult next five or six games. If they can get through them relatively unscathed, then they, they have a genuine chance of finishing in the top four, which would be absolutely remarkable. But I've, but I would argue that as things stand at the moment, that would be as close to a Leicester situation as you could get. Because I, I just don't see when you've got clubs that have raised the bar as to the extent that Manchester City have. I don't think Leicester wouldn't have won the league if you needed if you'd have needed to have got 98 points to win it that season. And, and that is not to undermine their achievement at all, because they still they got for an entire season and only lost two matches. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, and they beat pretty much everyone. Um, I think it's only Arsenal that they didn't beat, in that in, in Tarsi, which is weird because Arsenal were not even that great. But they, they, I think they had a, was it two, I think two defeats against it. I think they lost home and away to Arsenal. But they beat everyone else at least at least once. 
and only lost two in the whole season. So amazing, amazing. But, you know, it's, it's actually really bad. I mean, a lot of people are enjoying this season, even if they're having to watch it from their armchairs rather than uh, being in the stadium. I think they're enjoying it because of the unpredictability of it. The fact that you don't know from one week, you, you just think one club has kind of clicked into gear and going to have a return to normality and then they go and lose two on the bounce again, you know. Um, but I think Man City have any attempt at people getting like overexcited about that. The last sort of five or six weeks, Man City have said, ah, no, calm down. And I mean, you know, I was reading about the, their style of play as well. So, you, you know, they they sort of what I was reading was it was it was a bit long ball. It wasn't, you know, the ticky tacky that's possibly quite fashionable. Um, so and you, and you talked about some of the, the, the key defenders, which, you know, I read was quite instrumental in Brian Clough, Brian Clough's team. Um, yeah. You know, oh, those two there, yeah. Different- yeah, yeah. Brian, not um, what about Nigel Clough's team? <laughs> yeah, I don't want yeah. to know. Um, but but you know, setting up an underdog team that has a strong defence, yes. you know, can, you know, you got a, a, a good a good forward who could play off the shoulder of uh, of the opposing defenders. You know, potentially you could cr- recreate, uh, you know, or that is the best way to recreate uh, a Leicester by by setting up a team in that way. And maybe you give yourself the best chance. Well, you have to. Yeah, you... it's a, exactly. It's about giving us. I don't. I personally think it's unfair to characterise that Leicester team as, as long ball. They were possibly a little bit more direct than, say, Manchester City. But you have to be because if you try and match a team of uh, beautiful, um, highly talented technicians who are the most valuable assets in in world football and have been purchased for tens of millions of pounds, if you try and match them at a game of technical uh, skill-based football, you're, there's only going to be one team that comes out on top, so you have to find a way around that. That is one of the enduring um, attractions of football, that there are so many different ways of interpreting the game and approaching the game that it's all about that clash of styles on the day and the, those sort of, you know, tactical uh, face-offs. And, you know, where Leicester were, they, they played to their strengths. They knew they had a centre-forward who had really hit his straps in terms of confidence of, you know, finishing, but it's also lightning quick. Um, so if they could, I mean, sometimes it's a little bit like, you know how when you, when you watch like um, kids football, a lot of it will be revolving around stick the quick lad who is a decent finisher up front and just try and, you know, play a slide rule pass and the, that lad ends up with a one-on-one. And if you've got a quick lad who can finish, you're going to win more games than you're not. And it becomes almost like a competition of who's got the best quick lad up front who can who can stick the ball in it. And the way Leicester played at times that season was were a little bit like that. And so much of it, Vardy beating your side trap and then rap, you know away rapid. Um, but also that I think that does undermine the extent to which N'Golo Kante is a a very modern footballer in that you know his his uh, small frame. And um, but in strength and physicality and ability to read um, attacks from the opposition and break down play, not by making dramatic sliding challenges that are going to, you know, um, hit your end of season highlight reel. But these little discrete interceptions, just being a split second quicker than the attacking midfielder to the ball. So just getting his toe in and then and then, um, you know, feeding possession to the, you know, the winger or bringing the ball out himself. Just little things like that. If you can find somebody who who can 
do that. And then you've got players like Mares and, and Vardy and that season, or Brighton. And then they brought a lad called Damari Gray in the January transfer window that year who didn't have a massive impact on a young player, but he started coming on as a sub and it added to their attacking threat. Um, then you got half a chance. They had another lad play centre midfield with um, Kanto that season called Danny Drinkwater, who again was somebody who uh, I think he'd come through the youth ranks. Another, I think he was another um, um, Manchester United reject and had come through the youth system there and had been let go. And I don't know whether he went directly to Leicester. Might well have gone directly to Leicester. And a, he played there in the lower divisions anyway and sort of came up. And again, he had an absolutely remarkable season. And it's interesting with him. A lot of those players from that season, that was either their peak and then they, you know, they, they were able to then retire like legends and and, and very, very happy. Uh, but a few of them, who, you know, have been able to maintain that level of performance. So, you know, Kante goes on to be a key player. Moose to Chelsea goes on to be a key player uh, for France when they win the World Cup and, and, and in their Euros, which they hosted, where I think they ended up losing in the semi-final. So he's an, an elite player. Vardy has just been season after season an absolute goal machine. Mares is a key part of Manchester City's uh, uh, team over the last um, two or three years. But someone like Danny Drinkwater, he he kind of went the opposite. He, he I think he played one more season at Leicester, took a move to to Chelsea, and he's now had almost four years where he's barely kicked a ball because I, I don't know whether it's a lack of motivation, whether something's happened with his personal life, but he has just fallen off a cliff. Um. You know, so it's, it's it's very interesting when you look at like the different w- w- directions in which you can go after having a sort of you know a remarkable um, season like that. But the the Leicester, you know, the the way that they were approaching games that season and their strategy of maximising the talent that they had, maximising the strengths that they had, smart management as well. You know, they had a very likable manager who himself had a point to prove, which I think is important, and he wasn't he wasn't anyone's first choice when he when he sort of came along that summer but it just it felt like that season I remember he had these little you know very endearing little moments in sort of you know um pre-match press conferences when he was I remember he, he, he was talking that season about how if they they won that game he promised that the players would all have a pizza afterwards and he'd buy it for everyone and and he kept doing this thing going come on diddly ding diddly dong and I think <laughs> People were just like, because he's a very likeable kind of like, he's like, Claudio Ranieri, he's got this kind of vibe, like everyone's favourite dewy-eyed granddad, you know, he's like lovely. You can imagine him sitting in the corner and just telling you lovely stories that, are, you know, fill your heart with warmth while he gives you a word as original. He's got that kind of vibe going on about him. And uh, uh, and I think that, you know, that, that just really helped. And again, since then, he ends up, bear in mind, he won the league. Leicester had never won the league before. Not won it since the next season. They actually gone to really struggle, even though they got to the Champions League quarter final at the first attempt. They, uh, I think, in around the February of the next season, were, were flirting with relegation, and they they fired Ranieri, the man, the man who had won them the title. And you know, you could argue it was an overreaction. You could also argue it was the wise choice because they they didn't go down. But something had had just gone, but by as quickly as the sort of you know the. the the second third of the the next season, and but it is beautiful that that Claudio Ranieri, who's not a man whose name is ever mentioned in the elite manager uh, bracket, still had his moment, and he had a moment that that is going to be remembered far longer than 
pretty much any manager of modern time in terms of an individual season, not not in terms of building a dynasty like someone like Pep Guardiola, but in terms of achieving something absolutely remarkable and unexpected in 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 a season. And you know, and it is and it is a bigger achievement than pretty much anything else. Because you can't when you look at clubs who have defied expectation in the modern era and won the European Cup slash slash Champions League, yes, it, it's remarkable. You know, when you look at clubs that have done it against expectation, um in the late eighties there were a few like clubs like PSI Eindhoven and Porto, Porto again in 2004. You know, that that was probably, that along with Liverpool in 2005 with a really average team just going and, and who only finished fourth the year before and didn't even finish in the top four in the year they went won the Champions League you know, and then won it out of nowhere. That That's remarkable. And you get these dramatic moments like a final when you're 3-0 down or whatever. But that cannot be compared to a league season. To so do it over 38 games, you can, you can, to an extent, you can fluke a cup win. You know, you can, you can have an FA Cup run um, where everything just kind of falls into place and you hit this momentum and it's, it's beautiful. But you've only got to do it five or six times. To do it 38 times, week after week, with the pressure that those players wouldn't have been used to, you know, the, you know, the expectations starting to rise and rise. People, and, and, and also, don't forget the pressure that, the, the amount of goodwill they would have had for neutrals that season. Everyone wanted Leicester. If you didn't support the, the one or two clubs that had a chance of stopping the winning league, you wanted them to win a league. I guess unless maybe you supported Nottingham Forest or Derby, their local rivals who don't like them very much. But unless you, unless, you, know, you were in that very uh, specific category, everyone wanted Leicester to win a league. And, and, it, and I think it got people interested in domestic football um, to an extent that they probably hadn't been before or haven't been since. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, next week or next time. Yes, Matthew. You're uh, talking about 92 clubs. Let, yeah, let, let's, let, let, let's discuss in great and fascinating detail the extent to which 92 professional clubs uh, can continue to be uh, sustained and maintained. Yeah, I look forward to it. I can't wait, Matt. <laughs> I'll be counting down the seconds. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but until then. Until then, uh, and on that bombshell, it's uh, good night from me. Aha.